0: Welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium for episode 7. And if you
1: came over from Mysterious Circumstances with Justin Rimmel, welcome.
0: Welcome!
1: We hope you enjoy our little corner of the internet here and come back for another episode. If you have not listened to our back catalog already. That'd be cute. If you haven't seen on our Facebook page, we went some turtle hunting in Churubusco, Indiana, and we found Oscar. I mean, he's really not that hard to find. He's like literally on the main strip. He's and,
0: massive anyways. You can't yeah. miss him.
1: And also we went by Fol- Lake Folk to go see it for ourselves. Um, you can't really see the main part of the lake from the road because from what it looks like, the rest of it's only way you can get to is by private property. So fortunately, that was like the best picture we could get for you if you've seen it. In it our still Facebook group, shows
0: enough, I think. I know.
1: Um, if you're curious to see it, it's in our Facebook group. Just search "Macab Emporium Podcast" on Facebook. So, with that said,
0: so we went to one of my sister's house for Thanksgiving dinner. Had an amazing feast. Mm-hmm. Giant turkey. What'd you say it was? Like twenty-seven pounds, twenty-six pounds. Yeah, it was huge.
1: Turkey for days. Yeah. Be like Bubba gum for turkey for the next yeah. couple days for them.
0: Yeah, she made so much food mm-hmm. but it was it was super good and it was nice to get out of our own house and not be bothered by cats up your ass yeah, all the time almost
1: except for the few mornings we were up before they were and their cat just non-stop screaming at us even though we knew what it wanted
0: yeah she wanted treats but i yep. mean she's literally not physically on you right all the time right big difference oh yeah, i'm sure what was the what was the best part of this little getaway for you
1: a little getaway, you know, just, you know, getting away from home, you know, and having ginger not up my ass constantly like she always is. <laughs> right. And actually being able to have Thanksgiving with my family for the first time in a few years. hmm I think, what, seven years now that we had scheduled a change that I was able to do that. And of course, you know, stuffing myself with my grandmother's potatoes, on, you know, for a holiday.
0: Of course. So for me, it was just, you know, the dinner, obviously, that's always, I mean, not not a bonus, but it was delish. And then just being able to spend time with the one sister. hmm And our trip to Wooden Nickel Records. Of course. Yes. Where well, we got, <clears throat> what was it, uh, Dave Grohl's Dream Widow album.
1: Which, Dream Widow is a fictional thrash metal band that they created for the movie Studio 666, if you've not seen it yet. It's actually a great movie. Yeah,
0: it's yeah, It's hilarious.
1: Uh, There is somewhat of an inside joke, depending on how much you know about Dave Grohl in there. Um, If you do not know that Dave Grohl is actually a huge barbecue enthusiast like I am, um, they do make a joke about his cooking on the grill and how it's trash when he really literally owns a barbecue catering company.
0: And, like, doesn't he go out and actually barbecue for the firefighters that are fighting the wildfires in California? Yeah, he has done
1: that before, so has Guy Fieri as well. It just quite interesting that they had used in, in that movie if you hadn't seen it before it's your own fault like i said about hocus pocus 2 in our halloween episode you should have seen it by now but spoiler alert he takes somebody out with a girl in the movie but it's so funny it's yeah. so funny what was it no more oatmeal and beer bongs for davy or something
0: like something that? like that <laughs> i don't know what was funny i you think know. we laughed through that entire movie yeah
1: and then, like, the looks of it, you know, it was going to be fucking terrible, and it was a lot better than I expected it yes. to be. Yes,
0: I was not looking forward to it, just because it looked like it was going to be straight cheese, and it was, but kind of right. the best but way.
1: Right, but yeah, so gotta look at their early Foo Fighter videos, they were yeah. also kind of that way, like, um, the one forever long comes to mind. Yes. And the one where they make spoofs of the Mentos commercials, where he's, like, in the... A- <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: yeah. yes, yep. <clears throat> Didn't you tell me for that movie that they had to, like tell dave girl how to play yes dave they actually girl. had to
1: <laughs> hire a acting firm i guess to, uh, for the foo fighters to act like the foo fighters
0: yeah just, i don't know how they didn't know how to do that it was probably but...
1: more or less to you know make them i guess put them at the like how they look to everybody else uh-huh. outside of in the real world but be able to portray it on film when they're acting i guess i don't know Could be. but when i first heard that i thought that's where it's like how do you tell somebody to how to act by them be themselves.
0: Right. So this week I will be talking about a uh, I guess you could call him serial killer. Okay. Him or her. Don't don't know for sure. Out of the county that I grew up in in Michigan. Okay. What are you going to talk about this week? I'm
1: going to be bringing you and everybody else that's listening obviously. Uh huh. A case that was a very unique hostage situation that actually changed the. Insanity plea nationwide
0: Insanity plea?
1: Yep, the insanity plea, you know, for our case This case here changed it nationwide And this is the case of Tony Curitzis He's also known as the Dead Man's Line
0: Okay And his, your portion is gonna have to be a two-parter Just because of how much yeah. is going into this So I will be sharing my case first And then you'll take over Yep With part one
1: Yes, with part one of the dead man's line,
0: and then next week he will start first to finish with part two, and then I will interject something. I don't know what I'm going to write about yet, but
1: right.
0: it'll be something.
1: You can't time to find something.
0: Yeah. With that said, I, well, as I already said, it'll be a case out of my my hometown area. It's on the Oakland County child killer. Uh, the case spans between 1976 and 1977 in the whole suburban Detroit area. Okay. Which is a big area. It leaves, like, back then, like, all of the families that had kids, like, under, mm-hmm. you know, under teen years, basically, like, left all of them scared shitless that no. their kid's going to be the next one. Right. So before I actually start with the case, please know that the details with the murders. Consist of children and will have graphic detail. This case is as aggravating as it is heavy on the heart. That's your warning.
1: Yep, that's the only one you're getting.
0: Yep, for me, anyways. Yep. I don't know. I don't know how your story is gonna go, but this one's
1: mine's not gonna be nearly as bad because mine's not involved with children. It's yeah. only an, a, an adult male.
0: Okay, so we're gonna start with the victims. I don't have any like information about any of them before this happened so we're going straight into victims okay so the first victim of the oakland county child killer was 12 year old mark stebbins of ferndale he had been walking home from the american legion hall where his mom worked as a bartender there was a pool tournament going on there that mark didn't care to stick around for so he chose to walk the three blocks in the daylight mind you okay three blocks to mm. go home and watch a movie.
1: Yeah, I didn't see that much of Ferndale. It doesn't look like too bad of a barrier, the part we saw of it. And you, but... Right,
0: and you've walked the blocks, so they're not that huge. Right. Unfortunately, he would never make it home. The Stebbins family would go to the police station to file a missing persons report around 11pm that evening, only to be told by the police that they had to wait a full 24 hours before they could file it. Mm. Which is standard. Yes you'd think with kids though that they would uh be a little more on top of
1: true getting but, you know you know every kid that goes missing they can't like just pull resources for that so that's probably why no, they I know. 24 I know. period
0: so mark was last seen on february 15th 1976 Four days later, on February 19th, 1976, his body would be found by somebody who was just out walking their dog. Yeah. His body was located behind an office complex and tucked kind of like, like behind a half wall almost. Okay. So they, he was out just enough that they were able to catch like a part of him that right. they were like, what is that? Let me go like investigate.
1: Like sticking out or something, basically. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it, yeah, he was hiding behind the low wall, but not enough that he wasn't on full display. So they saw him in some form, but couldn't fully Mm -hmm. see. He had been sexually assaulted and then strangled to death. There were two cuts on the back of his head and rope burns on both of his wrists and both ankles. This could mean that he was tied up during his captivity. It could have just been for a short time because it doesn't say like how bad the rope burn was or any of that. When he was found, he was wearing the same clothing he had on. Okay. However... They had been cleaned. Like, whoever took Mark, took his clothes off of him, washed his clothes, and then put that back on. Well,
1: oh, that, my guess, is probably trying to hide any evidence of some sort.
0: Yes. So, he was reclothed in the clothing he had on originally, and um, they determined that the clothes were put on after he had died. Okay. So, yeah. Then he was put outside for someone to find him. Yeah. Hopefully, someone to find him. It's like. It, Whoever did this wasn't trying to fully hide. Like, they they were all left in a state that they could have been found. Right. Like, he wasn't trying to hide. He, she, whatever. Wasn't trying to hide the fact that they did what they did. Right. After the killing of Mark, it shot fear into the homes and hearts of everyone in Oakland County and the surrounding counties. Like, almost to the the point of hysteria. Okay. Like I said earlier, Suburban Detroit is a giant area.
1: Right. So kind of like the hysteria of mm-hmm. during the Night Stalker time because, you know, his motive was all over the place and they couldn't pinpoint.
0: Probably. Yeah. Probably. Okay. Victim number two was 12-year-old Jill Robinson of Royal Oak, which is right next to Rindell. So she had gotten into an argument with her mom, Carol Robinson, and decided she was going to run away instead of staying home and working things out with her mom. She packed a backpack with clothes and planned to take off on her bike, and the family assumed that she was going to go to her dad's house because her mom was recently divorced from her dad. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And he lived like five miles away, but unfortunately she'd never make it. Jill was last seen on December twenty second, 1976. Her bike was found a day later on December twenty third, and her body wouldn't be found until three days after that on December 26th. The cops came to the family's house and knocked on the door. It would be opened by Jill's younger sister, and I didn't get a name for her. The police told the girl that they found her sister's dead body. Why would they tell that to another child?
1: Probably because, you know, at that time, it just didn't matter.
0: Like, can you imagine being, I don't know how old her sister was, I think she right. was maybe a year or two older, opening the door to cops telling you your sis- they found your sister's dead body. Yeah. Like, ugh. She had been shot in the face and dumped on I-75 near Big Beaver Road. Half of her face had been shot off, which they concluded was the work of a 12-gauge shotgun. She was found face-up, neatly laid out in the snow, clothed in what she had disappeared in, with her backpack on her back. Just how she was left. However, it was evident that she, evident that she had been bathed, and just like with Mark, her clothing had been washed and put back on her body before it was put on display. And also with with Jill, mm-hmm. she was in eyesight of the police station.
1: So whoever this killer is almost taunting him at this point.
0: Yes. Yep. Like, eye view of the police station. Yeah. Really? Like, why would you do that? The third victim would be 10-year-old Christine. I'm going to butcher it, even though I have a hooked-on phonics type of... The third victim would be 10-year-old Christine Mihalik of Berkeley... Christine had headed out to go buy herself a magazine from a nearby store. As she was on her way home, she, can you guess? She never made it. All right. Okay. Christine was last seen at 7-Eleven around 3 p.m. on January 2nd, 1977. Her lifeless body would be discovered on January 21st, 1977 by a mailman in Franklin, Michigan. She was also fully clothed in what she wore the day of her disappearance, and like the two of Two children before her, her clothing had been washed and she was redressed. Her body had been partially buried in a snowbank with her eyes closed and her arms folded on her chest. Like you'd see in like an the old, old timey, Nosferatu movie. Like
1: old-timey casket preparations. Yes,
0: just like that. Christine's autopsy stated that she had been smothered to death no more than 24 hours before she was found. So that's like 19 days that she was missing. from disappearance to finding her body Hmm. her mom Deborah Jarvis said the reason why they kept her so long was because of how sweet she was Deborah went on TV numerous times begging her daughter's abductor to let her go she even offered $17,000 which had been raised by neighbors, townspeople you know anything anything they could contribute they did uh, towards ransom money if they just brought Christine back to her the last known victim of this killer would be 11-year-old Timothy King of Birmingham. Timothy's sister Kathy had given, some, given him some change so he could go get some candy from the corner store. He took off on a skateboard, went to the store, and this is where he would last be seen. That would be on March 16, 1977. His body was found by two teenage boys on March 2nd, or no, March 22, 1977. He had also been sexually assaulted and then suffocated, just like the first one. Yeah. He was wearing what he was last seen in, though it had also been freshly washed and pressed this time. His skateboard laid next to him. And at this point, detectives kind of pieced it together that they had a serial child killer on their hands. Timothy's autopsy revealed he had died six hours prior to being found and had been fed before he was murdered. A woman saw him talking to a man in the parking lot of a pharmacy, and then he was gone. His father went on TV and begged the perpetrator to not harm his son and told Timothy directly to stay strong. King's mother wrote a letter, and it was printed in the Detroit News, which stated that she wanted him back home so that she could give him his favorite meal, which was Kentucky Fried Chicken. but. They later found out that that's exactly what he ate before he was murdered. His killer fed him Kentucky Fried Chicken and then killed him. There were other children that were abducted and murdered between the four victims that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. Those would never actually be linked to the Oakland County Child Killer. Why? I couldn't find. I'm assuming because the way they were... (laughs) I mean, it, it could be. But... I'm assuming it's the way that they were left out in the open, like, mm-hmm. just waiting to be found. Yeah. But, again, I wasn't I wasn't alive at this time, so right. I could be completely wrong about that. Okay, so as an aside, the asshole that killed these children was dubbed the babysitter. Yeah. <laughs> or the babysitter killer.
1: Right. Like, and this is one of those things that's, like, where I've said before, and I'm sure other podcasts have, and mm-hmm. I know that some... Of the people that do listen to this you know are part of you know the time suck community it's mm-hmm. like give them the name micro micropeens, thinking nuts and shit like that and then you know, yeah crap like that but of course you know we can't do that on right news media because you can't say things like that but you right. know that was a different time but i think that's kind of changed since then even though serial killers aren't as prevalent as they are in your story it could be because it's not much, I guess you'd say, much of a thing. Mm-hmm. Forensics is catching people sooner. Yes. Or, or you know, as bad as it's going to sound, they've gotten craftier on hiding their shit. Ugh, yeah. You know.
0: Which is unfortunate. Especially, yeah. well, I mean, they didn't have what we have now to help us track right. these people. And, right. And, it's aggravating. So, yes. Babysitter, babysitter killer. And people called him this because he, as they said, obviously cared about these children right. otherwise they wouldn't have gone the extra mile to wash them wash their clothes re-clothe them you know right. after they killed them yeah you don't like that's a real fucked up link between like babysitters and murderers right that nah, I, don't, I don't like it so the process we've talked about the victims mm-hmm. the known victims Right. there could have been more. They organized the largest manhunt the U.S. had seen up to that point to try and find the killer, or killers. The gaps in time between each case made it harder and harder to connect the dots, but after Timothy came up missing and then found murdered, things became a lot clearer to detectives. The suspected kidnapper was driving a blue AMC Gremlin. Okay. Have you ever seen those?
1: Yeah, it's the same car that Wayne, and Wayne drove in Wayne's World.
0: Okay. This led to authorities. Sorry, it was
1: Garth's car, not Wayne's.
0: This led to authorities questioning every owner of a gremlin within Oakland County.
1: Well, I mean, uh, with only that as a lead, they're going to have to do that.
0: But a blue in particular. Oh, true, but. A sketch was created of both the car and the man suspected of the kidnapping. He was described as a white male between the ages of 25 and 35. With a dark complexion, shaggy hair, and sideburns. I was like, holy shit.
1: That's every man. Shaggy. Is, that's every man <laughs> in the 70s. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. But I immediately, with that, that. Uh, like zoink
1: so scoops. Yes. Was that like, shaggy. That's,
0: yeah. That's what I got <laughs> was fucking Scooby Doo shaggy.
1: Um, I it, mean, was he ever seen with a green shirt and brown bell bottoms too? Or,
0: or a large tan dog.
1: In the 1970s, it was a very good possibility <laughs> that a lot of guys were wearing, you know, that color combination. That's true. Which is actually probably was an avocado shirt, really. Because that avocado green was very popular in the technical. 70s.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he would have been familiar with the area and would have been able to keep children captive for long enough without making their neighbors suspicious. There was a theory out there that the pedophile community may have the killer of the children, mm-hmm. like within their community. Like they knew about it, they just weren't saying anything.
1: Right. Because it was I don't want to ge- I don't want to be involved. I don't want to get any more trouble than I already am.
0: Well, we we don't we don't know.
1: I understand that.
0: That that is just a theory. So the detectives and their helpers checked more than eighteen thousand tips that came in. One of those tips would leave that, would lead them to discover a multi-state child pornography ring out of North Fox Island in Lake Michigan. I've never heard of this mm. place. This would not wind up panning out as being part of the Oakland, Ch- Oakland County child killer case. However, they found a pedophile ring. They took them down. Mm. Like, good on them. After the gremlin became the vehicle that was focused on, Timothy's brother Chris told everyone that he doubted that that was the suspect's vehicle, as he had also seen that same car, the blue gremlin, in a different parking lot the same evening. Yeah. Chris wasted his breath telling the police about seeing it back in 1978, since no one believed what he had to say about it in general. A few weeks after Timothy was found by investigators, a letter written by only the name Allen had been sent to a psychiatrist by the name of Bruce Dantos. In the letter, Alan stated that his roommate Frank was the Oakland County child killer. Claims were made that Frank had been in Vietnam and was suffering from PTSD, and that is what caused him to kill the children.
1: I don't understand how having PTSD from Vietnam would make you commit crimes like this.
0: Especially against children. Right. Also, why would vietnam ptsd force you to screw the little boys before you kill them right like it, it doesn't go together for me either
1: all right and it kind of goes like somebody that's on my list the name that i mentioned for herbert william mullins i believe i have told you mm-hmm. before i mentioned it in our, our about me episode
0: yeah
1: um he had ptsd kind of lost his mind during vietnam and why he started to kill is from that is what he said it was but continue uh, But still, Alan, you commit crimes against children with using PTSD as your excuse.
0: Yeah. Alan also wrote in the letter that he was living as Frank's slave and that Frank was a sadomasochist. Alan had left instructions within the letter for Bruce Dantos, the psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. to contact him in the local newspaper. He then called the psychiatrist to set up a meeting in a local bar and, of course, Alan never showed up. Nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. So, if he did know who did it, like, we don't know what happened to him after.
1: Right. Or maybe Alan was the killer himself, and Alan was just, you know, a fake name, because, you know, like...
0: Well, all of them had it in quotations, so I'm assuming it's just a name right? that he signed with. It's probably not even his real name.
1: Because wasn't it Jack the Ripper that would write letters out? No, I mean, that's, uh, Jack the Ripper it was the Zodiac. Yes. That was writing letters, basically taunting. Yes. I don't know if the, these letters would be considered taunting, but, you know.
0: Mm, well, this, these letters wanted, I mean, they were saying, I know who it is, it's my roommate Frank. Right. Meet me so that I can tell you, but he never showed up. Like, we don't know if he was killed, because we don't even know who the fuck Alan really was. Right. But I would have been looking into everybody named Frank in the area. Right. Instead of everybody with a fucking gremlin, even if it wasn't blue.
1: Right, and I'm sure EMC cranked those things out by the thousands.
0: Oh, I'm um, sure. We will move on to the suspects. And there is a name. It's part of the big six that's going to be brought up in here, but it's just going to be very no, brief.
1: Well, you know, like, we're not covering them, but if they're brought right. up as a suspect, that's different. Yes. Because I have a sneaking suspicion of one of them, but I don't think he ever lived in Michigan. Don't
0: but... say anything. Okay. Okay. Uh, one of them was Chris Bush, who is a pedophile, and at one point was the prime suspect in the investigation. Okay. He was the son of an executive from General Motors.
1: Well, even if it was him, he would have got walked away.
0: Yeah. It's said that he was seen with Timothy King just a few days before the boy's body would be found. And that was easy, that, that was enough for the police. They caught up to Bush and arrested him on the spot, but they later released him on a plea deal. Chris Bush would be found dead in his home from a supposed self-inflicted gunshot wound in November of 1978. Bloody rope was found in his closet. Okay. Wonder why. There was a picture of a young boy screaming that he had hanging above his bed. Mm. Timothy King's father, Barry swears that it looked just like his son.
1: Yeah. Or well, out of emotional stress, maybe lack of a better term that he would say that that's what he wanted to see.
0: Correct. And that is why they couldn't use it because it, him, his dad alone saying that that looks just like my son wasn't enough proof for them to include that in anything. Right. Barry, Timothy's father, who's a lawyer, um, was always on the hunt for more information about his son's murder. He was given thousands of pages from the FBI and the task force working the Oakland County child killer case. Mm-hmm. The pile of, uh, this pile of information would include the details of Chris Bush's suicide. One piece in particular shook Barry. And this is really fucked up. That would be a line that stated that Bush's gunshot was not self-inflicted as he did not have any gunshot residue anywhere on him. Most importantly, none on his hands.
1: So somebody shot him.
0: Had he done it himself, it would have most it would have been almost impossible as the weapon fired was a rifle. Mm-hmm. So if he had no powder, no residue on his hands, right knowing how long a rifle is. Right. How how the hell is he gonna how's he gonna do that?
1: You know, like it depends, because there are sawed-off barrels, like which is
0: mm-hmm.
1: part of my story, but I'm gonna get to it now. Okay, as a possibility, you know, and you know, there's always the most famous one of those type of suicides of all, the Kurt Cobain one. Was there ever any residue found on him? You probably followed mm-hmm. more into that than I did.
0: Uh, I don't, I don't know. Okay, if he had done it himself. There would have been, would have been, for certain residue on his hands, and there was not even a trace of residue.
1: Like, I'm not even that knowledgeable in guns I am to a certain aspect of, like, the basics of being able to identify parts, but you would still think with the round exiting the barrel, there would still be powder that comes out at that end. Somewhere. I'm sure one of our fans will let us know.
0: Yeah. you. I mean, you would think. No. But... Almost four decades later, the Michigan State Police would reveal that there was hair found on all four victims.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All of them had the same hair. It was white hair, which they did testing on, mm-hmm. and determined that it belonged to a dog. A dog.
1: So Snoopy's out there doing this. Oh. Sorry,
0: but <laughs> as bad Maybe. as this, you
1: know, I had to. I had to do it. Snoopy's out there. I mean, other than being a Macy's balloon, the Maybe. Red Baron. We got, you know, flying around on his doghouse, he's out there being a serial killer.
0: We got Shaggy, we got Snoopy, oh man. During this release of information, investigators told the news reporters that they believed there was more than one person responsible for the, the murders. During this release of information, investigators told the news reporters that they believed that there was more than one person responsible for the murders. Our next suspect is Archibald Edwards Sloan. That's a really hard name for me to say, apparently. Uh, He became a suspect when hair samples gathered from his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville matched the samples that had been found on the bodies of Timothy King and Mark Stebbins. Mm -hmm. Even with the match, police could not tie Archibald to the other victims. Even after he confessed that he would sometimes allow his pedophile friends to to use his vehicle, they just let him walk free. Yeah. Even though... Any number of friends... Like, you would remember who you let borrow your car, wouldn't you? Yeah. Like, you can't have it as community property and just let any, you know, yahoo off the street use it. So he he knew everybody that used this car. Yeah. And to tie it to two of the kids, and they just let him walk away. He wound up being charged with two counts of first-degree criminal sexual conduct for things unrelated to the case that I'm telling you about. He was sentenced to life in prison in January 1985... While incarcerated, he was interviewed by detectives from the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force in both 2010 and 2012. He was given a polygraph test, and since then, detectives have confirmed that he failed one of the polygraphs in regards to this case. Again, no information given about what it was that he failed.
1: Right, but... It's come to the light that you can't really use polygraph tests as evidence anymore because mm-hmm. you know if you know how to fake it, you can walk away with anything, basically.
0: Yes, sir. Our next suspect, John Wayne Gacy.
1: Now, that Is was that, the one that was, was my thinking? guess just because of KFC <clears throat> and then as you're reading him off. Yeah. To me, it's like, no, that can't be just because of that little simple fact alone of KFC, but I'm sure you're going to go into why he was a suspect. Yes.
0: Uh, so, John Wayne Gacy was arrested in Chicago in 1978 and charged with more than 30 murders. This part, most anyone already knows about. If right. they, they've they done any kind of listening or research on if, Gacy. Yeah,
1: if you've done any listening to every other true crime podcast or weird history podcast or whatever you want to technically classify us as, you know, you've already heard about John Wayne Gacy. So yeah, I we're j- not
0: getting into all that.
1: No, but...
0: So, Gacy... During the times that the Oakland County child killer was active, was reportedly in Michigan for part of it. Okay. A witness reported to police that he had seen one of the victims talking to two men, and that one of the men looked just like Gacy. Okay. And he was pretty, uh, how would you say, unique looking? Yeah,
1: because, I mean, there was that life like statue and dad can we saw so yes. we met jeff it's from, just
0: his body proportions like he was just very unique like you'd be right. able to pick him out of a lineup.
1: right he's just a shape basically
0: his, he is a shape yes and Bulbous. not the
1: shape as in like michael myers since that's what he's technically known as is the shape oh did you not know that
0: no i did not no, yeah michael myers
1: you know? yeah michael myers is known as the shape basically i did
0: not know that yeah. Okay, so forensic evidence preserved from that case was tested in 2013 to see if Gacy was a match. Do you think he was a match?
1: Probably not.
0: He was not. And investigators do not believe he had any involvement.
1: So it's just pure coincidence he was in the area.
0: I mean, that's... They, they, they did what they had to, to do right. and they said it's not him. So it could be coincidence. Theodore Lambegine would wind up being the last major suspect in the killings. He was taken to court by the family of Mark Stebbins in October of 2007. The family had accused him of being the one that kidnapped, raped, and murdered Mark. The Stebbins family were after a wrongful death conviction and $25,000 in damages. In 2006, Lambegine admitted to being involved in a pedophile ring and sexually assaulting a number of young boys. He refused a polygraph test concerning the Oakland County murders, but even if he had, it wouldn't have mattered. In 2012, DNA tests ruled him out as a person that killed King and Stebbins. Lamborghini's pedophile ring partner, Richard Lawson, was also in prison for life. Lawson claimed another member of their five-person pedophile ring, Bobby Moore, had done the killings. Unfortunately, Bobby had died prior to Lawson giving this information, so we'll never... We'll never know that either. Sadly, after decades spent trying to find the person or people responsible for killing his son, Timothy, Barry King would pass away at the age of 89 on November 20th, 2020. His daughter, Catherine Broad, stated in a blog post that he, Barry, died in his own bed on his own terms. She also stated that he was diagnosed in August of 2020 with a motor neuron disease don't really know what that is
1: probably has to with what the motor neuron disease sounds like it probably deals with the mechanics of your body like your motor skills and stuff like yeah, that probably just you know a rough guess by the terminology it used in it
0: Could be, yeah. Uh, very soon after that he was no longer able to speak or swallow he passed away without ever knowing who took his son from him so long ago and he would never come to learn why and honestly, I don't think any of us will, with yeah. it being this far gone. And no. they've had so many suspects, and none of them have panned out. Right. The only thing that they have to go on right now is white dog hair. And you know that dog is long gone. Right. So it's, yeah, it'll probably never, never happen.
1: But that's just bizarre that the only piece of evidence they found was a white dog hair, basically. Yep. So, you know, that is
0: the one thing other than the being washed and placed back in their clothes right. and laid out on full display other than the killings that right. they can match right. with them.
1: I mean, it's so interesting that whoever this was or the people that were doing this uh-huh. went, you know, that far into making sure that they weren't getting caught because, you know, you see people that claim that, you know, I watch true crime. I know how to hide the bodies and get yeah. away with it. Like, that wasn't even a thing then, but this person or persons were doing this already before.
0: And they didn't, they didn't even try to hide them.
1: Right, but, you know, this being, you no know, the peak of serial killers that, you know, it's all over the news. They're going to hear that stuff. Yeah. But, and that's probably how they were able to get away with it, by not making the same mistakes as that.
0: Uh, maybe. Even
1: though... The simplest things is what brought these people down. Like, Ed Kemper got pulled over for a fucking broken head taillight. Mm-hmm. And that's what got him busted. And one of the times yep. he did get pulled over, he asked the officers, you're not going to check the trunk, are you? You uh, know, when he had a body in the back of the fucking car at the time Jesus. he said it, because he was so confident in himself at that time that he knew the police officers so well that they were going to be like, hey, you're all right, Ed, just go. You know, he would have been caught a lot sooner than he did for something as yeah. simple as a bulb that cost a few cents. Yeah.
0: So, do you think it's possible that investigators uh just miss something that could have directly led them straight to the person or persons in that are responsible for the murders?
1: It could have been you know like when the, it was what the
0: twenty tens is when
1: they started doing all this forensic stuff on it,
0: yeah, yeah, give or take
1: I mean. Probably Michigan didn't have the technology sooner well, they probably had the technology sooner, but it being a cold case at this point, they probably really didn't care. I mean Yeah. But it's just interesting that all of a sudden they decided to do this, you know, but probably grant money is what they wanted to close cold cases is probably what brought it up.
0: That's a high possibility. Right. So my takeaway from this, don't let your babies run the streets by themselves, especially right. in today's time if you're doing that. Right. Shame on you. The world that we live in now, like, I don't think it was... It wasn't as bad back then right. as it is now. There are still sick people. Right. Like, this world that we live in right now is a scary fucking place. Right. Don't let your kids be out by themselves. Don't let them walk home fucking anywhere. Like, if they're... If they are not able to fully defend themselves being just a little kid, don't let them walk alone. Right.
1: You know, if you're saying that with... I've seen my one niece she posts a lot of stuff about this is that, you know, don't use baby terms for your own body parts,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, yep. it makes a big deal out of it, you know, use scientific terminology mm-hmm. so they're comfortable with using it,
0: Yeah.
1: you know, but also statistically the world is a safer place than from when this all happened. Seriously? Yes. Even though it doesn't seem like you got to think about it with social media in our faces constantly, that type of news is constantly in our face now. So it makes us think that the world is a lot more dangerous. I don't
0: know. It don't feel safe. My my thing
1: just. And I, I'm not saying that it is, really is. I'm just saying by statistics it says that it is, but it probably really isn't. No. You know. Back
0: then you would keep your doors unlocked, your windows right. open. Right. I, we wouldn't do that shit now.
1: Yeah, I, I know. We no. don't now.
0: We no. There's no way. But just. At the end of all my bullshit rant, keep your baby safe. Like, you, you have to protect them. Right. You can't expect people that don't know them that just happen right. to see them in a parking lot. Like, watch over them. You can't expect that. Right. <laughs> that out of the way. What are you talking about?
1: So, I'm going to be talking about a case... That has to deal with the insanity plea that which, this verdict, changed it nationwide. It's about a one man that kind of basically got pushed to his limits, so he took matters into his own hands.
0: Is this going to be like that movie that... that you made me watch with Michael Douglas in it, where he goes into, like, mm. army surplus store to, like, yeah, take people kinda out? Yeah, kind of like
1: falling down, but That's I movie. actually... When searching this, that actually came up about if that movie was inspired by this, but there was never ah. a yes or no kind of clear answer about it. Okay. But I would say this kind of probably inspired Falling Down for them to okay. write that movie. And it's interesting, the older you get, the more that movie
0: makes sense. Yes, it does.
1: <laughs> so what my case is that I'm bringing since I'm doing True Crime this week since...
0: True. You're doing true crime.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, like I said, was my first one in what episode two. Yeah. Was it that I yeah. went like a thousand miles an hour really fast? Yeah. <laughs> and then also with us moving to doing weekly episodes now, I wanted to start getting back into doing some true crime. But, you know, unique true crime cases. Yes. So this is the case of what is also better known as the dead man's line. I don't know if you've ever heard the term before or not I have not, no. Okay. Um, so this is actually the case of Anthony G. Kiritzis He was also known as Tony by people that knew him Okay So that's it, and here we go During my time spent in the fire service One of my captains would always say The fire service is a science of alternatives This is probably very fitting for all forms of public service on a cold day in February of 1977, a man by the name of Anthony G. Curtis, or Tony, as he was well known as by his friends and law enforcement in the area, he would push law enforcement and lawmakers to the point of thinking outside of the box in a three-day hostage situation that would last 63 hours total for the best possible outcome for everybody. This is the case of what was known as the Dead Man's Line. Anthony Tony G. Kurtzis was born on August 13, 1932, to Greek immigrant parents George and Magdalene Kurtzis. Tony would grow up with three brothers and a sister. And Tony would describe later on during his trial that his father was very violent and strict with him and his brothers and his sister when they were growing up. Which I will go over that the stories he had during his time on the stand okay. of that. I couldn't find out much else about his early life and his childhood most of the information i did find they did mention that one that he did sell used cars at one point and he also spent some time as a bartender and he also would achieve the rank of corporal in the army and as i already stated he would make friends with many police officers from around the area as well and uh, his neighbors in the apartment complex he lived in would say that he was also a very helpful man with getting groceries and doing other tasks because of mm-hmm. the elderly residents that lived in the same apartment complex. Friends that Tony had and the police officers he was also friend with would say that he was a very good friend, but he also could make a very bad enemy because of his, his temperament. Oh. In December of 1972, Tony and his father would purchase a 17 acres of land in Speedway, Indiana for a shopping center featuring a grocery store and strip malls. Uh, speedway indiana is like the northwest side of indianapolis
0: that's where the the nascar track is yeah
1: it's actually indy league but yes don't you dare call our speedway a fucking nascar track
0: but (laughs) when you're in that area it's literally if you open like your weather app it says speedway indiana
1: right but don't you ever dare call that track a nascar track in the state basically because people are very protective of that it's like calling your petoskey stones rocks,
0: but they are rocks.
1: You know what I mean.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Think there's gotta be one thing in the state of Michigan. If you call it some the wrong thing, somebody's gonna come at you in a mob with pitchforks and torches.
0: Uh-huh. Pop.
1: There you go. Don't you're,
0: call it soda.
1: Yeah, your fag soda. See how's <laughs> how's that make you feel now that I called it that?
0: It's a pop. It's <laughs> the best pop ever.
1: All right, now that I've gotten off track here. Um, so since he did, you know, try to start this shopping center with, strip, uh, with a strip mall and the grocery store, um, some of this reports were Osco Jewel out of curiosity. I looked into it. Were what? Were Osco Jewel. It's a chain at uh, the time. Okay. Okay. Probably because they never reached Michigan or you can buy soda.
0: Listen, <laughs> I have short legs, but I will scoot in far enough to kick you in the shin.
1: All right. Okay. So. Fast forward to February 8th, 1977, when this all actually starts. Tony would enter Meridian Mortgage at 129 East Market Street, Indianapolis, Indiana. Like he would many times before, because this is a mortgage company he had his, his payments for, through for this land deal that he was working on. But on this day, he had different plans. Uh, Tony is a very short and stocky man with a clean-cut appearance. I mean, like, Super straight edge raised burns, stuff like that. Oh, crew God. cut. Okay. You
0: know. So much like Michael Douglas in that movie.
1: Yeah, basically. But he okay. had he his sideburns were, I guess you could say, magnificent, just because of the shape he had of them. Are they
0: like pork chops.
1: They almost could be the mutton chest, but he had them come out and down to a point a little bit, but not like as much as I'm showing you. Oh, even though.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm I'll show visual.
1: you. I'll show you a picture <laughs> so you can see later. He would enter the office this day wearing a cardigan sweater over a dress shirt and a blue medical sling. The medical sling is actually an important part of this. Also carrying with him was a department store suit box and rolled up blueprints. The receptionist found this a bit odd as the high temperature that day was only at negative negative nine degrees. And I looked this up to see what the height at the time of this happening was negative 9. It was actually around 12 degrees by noon
0: so it was just especially cold that day
1: yeah that morning that when this all happened tony would request to see the chairman of meridian mortgage ml hall which he had been working mostly with during a real estate deal for the shopping center that tony was developing unfortunately he was out of town vacationing on florida but the receptionist did inform him that his son richard will be in the office shortly after 8 a.m richard hall ml's hall's son enters the office and isn't slightest in the bit surprised to see tony waiting because he was in there constantly seeing his father for yeah. the work of his land deal. Richard Hall was familiar, like I said, with Tony coming in because but he was, he would witness many heated debates he would have with his father over this property and, and his father would like basically shove him out of the office when he started getting heated. Richard being there, he assumed that, that he was there to talk to his father about the loan he had taken out with the property and was happy to see Tony there because mm-hmm. he figured that he had figured out a way to settle his debt he had with their office.
0: Oh. Okay.
1: I'll get more like when we get to the end of this, I'll explain exactly what Tony was pushed out cuz it kind of ruins it if I tell you why.
0: So then yeah, just hold off okay. on that. Is it wait, is that going to be the end of part 1 or next week's part 2?
1: It'll be part of next week's part 2. Okay. Richard Hall would ask Tony to come into his office for a private chat. He was aware of the sling that Tony had been wearing many times before on his previous visits that he had made recently. He Tony told Richard that he was getting ready to have surgery on his arm and to make like a personal connection small talk with Tony. He asked about his surgery and he had also noticed He was carrying the bull uh bullprints, blueprints and the (laughs) suit box as well. Now, this was mentioned in one or two sources, but it was kinda weird. But this next little thing came from directly from the Dead Man line documentary. Uh, tony would ask if he could close his like dick hall's office door so he could adjust his jockey shorts real quick and hall knew that tony would do found it kind of odd but he was known tony would do odd things and he didn't give it much thought as he was laying up the blueprints out on the conference table in his office while he had his back to tony and at this point with his back towards tony Curtis he would Tony would tell Dick Hall to turn around, and the next thing he would see is Tony taking his arm out of the sling, and he was hiding a .38 pistol inside of his sling and pointed it right at him, and told Dick Hall to get on the floor on his knees. And from this point, so the sling, the blueprints, it was all bullshit. Okay. You know that they get, you know, Dick Hall drop his guard basically. Mm-hmm. At gunpoint, Tony Kurtz takes off dick call's suit coat and starts to take the modified semi-automatic shotgun that he was hiding in the suit box out and starts attaching it to dick hall's neck as he's doing this dick hall would plead with tony you don't want to do this you can stop this at any time but tony kurtz's only response was no i'm going to continue as i just mentioned the documentary dead man's line which you know, i use a lot of the source material on their website which mm-hmm. i'm very thankful that they put a lot of it out there um, according to their website, Tony was inspired by an episode from Hawaii 50 from season 3 named the Double wall the main character which he meets a dying inmate holding high hostage while confessing to murder unlike the television show Tony would use steel cable and but in the television show the confessing murderer would use a medical tape but basically make the same device mm-hmm. as what Tony did uh, Tony Kurtz's version of this weapon was, you, like I said, just uses heavy steel cable, and he had it attached around Dick Hall's neck. And in some of the pictures, you can see it in some, but some sources say it wasn't attached to Kurtz's, but it was in some of the higher-resolution res- higher photos that they have on the documentary website. Okay. And to what's called the rib of the shotgun, which is used for heat dispersion and using a line of sight down the barrel. Mm-hmm. And then that steel, piece of steel cable was also ran down through the trigger guard they protect the trigger from accidental misfires mm-hmm. and that was also attached to tony kurtz's uh, trigger finger and in some of the pictures you can see it but something you can't tony Kurtz's had a loop around his neck as well too attached to the same one on his finger so and this is basically also do where he had a leather some sites said it was either a plastic or leather sleeve he had it or the entire firing um chamber cylinder of the shotgun so he couldn't be jammed he thought this shit out wow to the
0: i mean p- sounds like it
1: with all this the whole way this was developed was if they tried to yank holloway or he tried to get away it would use enough force to fire the shotgun or if they shot tony crucis in his body dropping he would fire the shotgun wow and then uh what he would also would do is he would have the safety removed from this and he would hand it to dick hall so you know he wasn't bullshitting him
0: so he basically had it rigged so if mm-hmm. one dies the other's gonna die
1: or they tried to rescue dick hall he was gonna die anyway by yanking him away from tony by the yanking him away since it was on a tight loop around his finger that it was gonna cause it to fire mm. uh, from looking at the pictures for a gun aficionados I'm sure that are curious, this is more than likely Remington 870 most likely, because it was the most popular shotgun at the time mm-hmm. that Remington was making. But it was also loaded with a, what they call a number five shot, which is a very popular a popular shell that's used for pheasant and duck hunting. Okay. So this is like a much smaller ball than Double buck, which uses a bigger, like pea-sized one, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. This is much smaller, so it has a much wider pattern, if I remember right from what I read. I forgot to put it in my notes. I shouldn't have. For explanation
0: what do you mean a much smaller pattern i'm not a, a so, gun person so i don't know
1: when and i'm sure if i get this wrong I mean like i said i'm not a gun aficionado so like with shotguns they use small pellets or a slug mm-hmm. with this using a pellet when they leave the barrel they spread out okay so and with pellets the bigger they are the more it's gonna leave a larger hole but using a smaller one it's going to for pheasants it's not going to destroy the bird basically okay it's i mean what, that makes sense yeah so like the watt is like the biggest pellet there is which i don't remember what the size is and it's made, made out of lead and steel it all depends on what you want to use i want to say like and then like i'm probably gonna tell i'm wrong the bigger pellets are used more for larger game but you're using number five for like Small birds, ducks, stuff like that. Because you use anything okay. bigger, you're gonna destroy the animal, and you're not gonna have any, you know, protein left, basically. Right. And after he would hand, Tony Kritzis would hand Dick call the safety. He makes a call to 911. Okay, what I'd, like for you to do. I'd like you to send at least two police officers. I'll tell you where we are
0: in a minute as soon as I figure it out. Just hang on a minute. I'm a little upset. Okay, just take it easy. That's your fucking life, on it. This is a bad thing. What's your name? Officer Miller. Mr. Miller? Yes, yes, sir. I'm not a bad fellow myself. Well, I know you are. I just want to find out where he is. I'm a mean motherfucker, and I'm mad. Now, I want you to send two police officers to this address, and I'll tell you what you can tell them. I've got a 12-gauge sawed-off automatic shotgun. I've got a dead man right on the trigger. There's three shells in a fucking gun. There's one in the chamber and the man with a gun on his neck, wrapped around him with a cable is holding the fucking safety in his hand.
1: So die right after here, spending well almost an hour on the phone with the dispatchers and asking for several of his friends in the police force and going on rants about Meridian Mortgage and how they fucked him, basically, is some of the things that he would say. Other things he would say during this call would state more than once that he isn't afraid to die, and he just doesn't... He he isn't afraid to die, and he just doesn't want to die. He was all over the place, mm-hmm. basically. He would go from super angry to calm, laughing, crying.
0: You did tell me this was a mental health thing, right?
1: More than likely, yeah, but...
0: Which would kind of explain the, the right. drastic mood swings.
1: Yeah. He would also show concern for Dick Hall's family more than once during these phone calls. And Tony would also mention his original plan was to kill four of them right out in the street when they went to lunch with a Browning automatic.
0: Damn. Yeah. He really thought that shit through. Yeah,
1: and a Browning automatic was basically used during military conflicts.
0: So not, like, too much, like, too powerful for just yeah civilian it, like i'm running on a
1: max basically a collector's weapon and if i remember correctly to have special licensing to own one of these legally
0: did he own it did I, he own one they,
1: i can never find any information on Ugh. if he actually owned one or not
0: well you did say he was in like military right right
1: so i mean maybe he stole it i know that sometimes world war Two veterans they hard borrowed
0: hard borrowed they
1: hard borrowed their weapon of i guess Issue or choice to, during World War Two? Is
0: that like promising somebody you're just gonna borrow it but you never yes. never return it? <laughs> okay. That's the first time I've heard that term.
1: <laughs> uh Tony would demand a police escort out of the building in these nine one one calls and to have a four door hardtop waiting along with a police escort. And then he also Tony would explain more than once that they try to intervene by either rescuing Hall away from him or killing him, this shotgun that he's created with the dead man's land would go off. At 9.04 a.m., Tony Curtis would grow impatient with the waiting on the police and decided to leave the building. Officer Ray, Ray Brunk would be the first to encounter the pair in the hallway as they make their way to the lobby. Brunk believed this is to be a textbook-type hostage situation situation and move closer slowly in hopes of diffusing the situation. Tony felt that he was about to be rushed by Brunk and would take his three d and jam it into his stomach and tell him I want you to take a look at this, meeting the dead man's line. I don't think you understand how serious this really is. Mm-hmm. Even being this close, he determined that, this was the, that it was best that he just backed away as he noted the cable that was too tight around Dick Hall's neck to be disabled. Tony would put his revolver back under his belt and continue his way outside, down through the building. Shortly after this, another officer that came up through the doorway of the stairwell after he had volunteered to go check on Brunk, since they couldn't reach him by radio to make sure that He was on the same channel as they were after trying to radio him. Mm -hmm. My guess is shitty radios in the 70s, building construction of that type being steel and stone, you're not getting a radio signal through that shit because even modern-day radios that we use in the fire service. I couldn't hear my officer standing 20 feet away from me calling on a radio. Mm -hmm. And those are digital and not analog. (laughs) Anyhow, Officer uh, Coffin that came up to check on Officer Brunk would put his shotgun to Tony's head, hoping it would persuade him to back down. Tony was completely unfazed by this and kept telling the officers he didn't mean them any harm and that he likes officers, police officers. Officer Brunk and Kaufman, along with their captain Don Millis, has now joined them after Kaufman arrived, are starting to grasp at how serious the situation is that they have on their hands. Tony suspected that they would try and keep him on the fourth floor where the mortgage office was located, so he would start shoving Richard Hall down the hallway to make it to the exit. To show the police how serious he was about this, he ordered Richard to give him the safety that he had been holding from the shotgun the entire time. At nine ten a.m., after walking down four flights of stairs, Richard Hall and Tony Kurtzis would emerge from 129 Market Street and onto the unsuspecting streets of Indianapolis. Oh, God. For the next 30 minutes, Tony would lead somewhat of a parade, I guess you could call it, on the streets of Indianapolis with Indianapolis Police Department officers running ahead to clear a path on the sidewalks and surrounding him, Tony, and Dick Hall. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine what some of these people thought when they would, were seeing this go on. Um, I did find some quotes from people that were involved in this whole section here. Okay. Uh, so the first one, I have two more that I'm going to read. I'm kind of trying to get them as best I lined up I could within this walk. And mm-hmm. uh, so this first quote is from Mike Harrison. He was was the head repair for Windsor Jewelry on Meridian Street. He still works there today, as a 2017 when his article was. He might have retired by now. He said that it was cold that morning. Tony came by so fast it was a fluke that I even saw him. We had just opened the store, and in the mirror I saw something. I told my partner, I think that man is marching another guy down the street with a shotgun. We immediately locked the door. If you see a guy walking down the street with a gun, you don't follow him. Right? <laughs> we kept the door locked for 30 minutes and turned on the radio. It was chaos for the next three days. And there are some pictures available that we're going to post with this, of people out gawking. And of course, I'm going to post pictures of what this whole thing looked like. Yeah. And some, and one of them is a Pulitzer Prize-winning picture that I'm going to use too.
0: Hopefully, not one that actually shows somebody how to make one.
1: No, no, it's. I'm not going to do that because I'm going to keep it safe. Because there's another part right. in part two that I was about to put in, and I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Because, I mean, I started typing away at it, and then I realized, like, yeah, I do not need to add this.
0: Probably the best the best option is just not.
1: those guys from the ATF that don't know what jokes are, I don't need them at our door.
0: No, <laughs> I don't either.
1: This could have been a much shorter walk if Tony might have remembered where he had parked his car, but he made the mistake of not turning to the right where his car was parked in the nearby lot, but he turned left instead. And he starts heading down Market Street towards Pennsylvania Street in downtown Indianapolis. There is a map I'm going to share with this, too. All right. They would turn it into turn on to Pennsylvania heading south and would disappear into a parking garage for a few minutes where surprisingly, but not really as well no, as Tony was in the area, he runs into somebody he knows.
0: Oh, lovely.
1: <laughs> and Tony asked for his car, but the driver of this car refused to give up his car to Tony and his hostage. They would later emerge from the parking garage and continue south down Pennsylvania Street to or towards East Washington Street heading west. During this walk, Tony would be surrounded by law enforcement officers with his guns with their guns drawn. But anytime they would get close, Tony and Dick Hall would stop and Tony would become more agitated with them every time that he would stop and have an outburst, someone taunting the police calling them bastards and like stupid bastards and other stuff and
0: but he liked the
1: police yeah he was at, like, in the videos that he was saying was one of the things was is like i have never seen what more of a bunch of stupid bastards in my life and i like police stuff <laughs> like that and he get and yell at them to do your job basically and this next quote that i have like i said i'm trying to put these into where they are you know as chronological they happen, order as they happen but it's kind of hard because the downtown indianapolis area changes so fast yeah. like part of where this timeline happens you can't even drive that way anymore mm. it's been closed off for you know a pedestrian traffic basically and it was a street at the time this happened and this next quote was actually from the mayor of indianapolis at this time i was at city hall sitting in my office when i looked out my window i saw is parading around hall with the gun strapped to his head obviously tony was somewhat deranged Everyone was thinking what an awful thing this was, but I am impressed by Hall's courage under fire. He was very stoic. He didn't weep or wail. It was a smart uh, smart way to behave. He was grim, but he was a good soldier, as in describe his description of Dick Hall. Um, there was another quote that the Mary was using. This all happened at a time they were trying to better the city's image. Oh god. Better the city's image to bring us bring them out of only being known for the Indianapolis five hundred.
0: Well, they're definitely not <laughs>
1: known for just that now. Yeah, Um, like with what he said about Dick Hall very stoic, he, in the videos I could see, Dick Hall would be walking with his hands in his pocket calmly, but is more likely to keep warm because, like I said, it was only negative ninety degrees this morning when yeah. this happened, and he's only out there in a very thin dress shirt. Yeah, and my maybe had like an undershirt underneath it more than likely, but still, it's still cold. And yet, you've been at ninety degrees yeah. here. Um out of curiosity trying to find when Jill couldn't find it.
0: Once you hit negatives, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. When Jill doesn't matter it doesn't
1: matter anymore. <laughs> um, Dick Hall would recount on one on one of the only three times he had ever talked about this ordeal that he did think about trying to escape, but Tony had him convinced that he was in control of the situation this whole time during because of his outburst during his during their walk. He did think also and he would also be told later on that if he would have possibly gotten gun- Tony's gun to the side of his head Instead of being pointed directly, but having the barrel come up over his shoulder, yeah, that he more likely would have just been deafened by the shotgun going off if he was able to get it swung Jeez. around to being coming this way, yeah. And this is going to be my last quote because this is from an officer in one of the well more well known pictures because of an incident that happens that during this walk that mm-hmm. was like oh fuck moment. Uh, this is from Officer J Michael Grable. He was 34 years old at the time and only 11 years on the force when this all happened, he is now retired. When I arrived on the scene, Tony was walking Hall west on Washington Street. I confronted him on the corner of Illinois and Washington. He turned around and yelled at me because I was getting too close. I was just asking him what he wanted. My gun was under my sweater. The temperature was minus 90 degrees, and Tony was wearing a short-sleeved shirt, and Tony had slipped on the ice and fell, taking Hall with him. It was a wonder that the gun didn't go off. It was... One of the two that hadn't fallen, he, Hall would have been killed right there, on the ground. Tony reached with his free hand toward a handgun he had on his side. If he had pulled that gun out, handgun out, I probably would have killed him. I had been shot once before, and I don't want to get shot again. But he had just repositioned the gun in his belt. And in with that quote. You can actually, the picture that was taken right after you can, in the videos, you can see the shock in Tony Kurtz's face that anything can go off. And they get, they get up and they continue to head on down the road, basically. And finally reaching the corner of Senate and Washington, Tony Kurtz's and Richard Hall went. Get in a waiting police car that an officer had left the door open on it wasn't meant intentionally for them this mm-hmm. officer got out to direct traffic because of them heading down the street
0: so he did they just hopped in and was like hey
1: yeah he basically he saw this door was open and they jumped in and one of in, in, in the video you they hear you hear this bang at one point turn around was one of the a driver going the opposite direction was so distracted by what was going on right into a telephone pole across the street oh geez yeah so after Tony and Richard Hull get in this police car, they continue to head west inside the now-commandeer police car. It was reported at approximately 80 miles an hour in downtown Indianapolis. Oh,
0: my God.
1: Towards Crestwood Village Apartments on the west side of Indianapolis, where the rest of this standoff takes place. And as much as I'd like to keep going, we want to keep this stuff around close to an hour. I know it's kind of a cliffhanger. Yeah.
0: Damn, I was into that too. I'm <laughs> I, know, like, I what's gonna happen next? I know. Next? And more
1: it's like, as I'm typing this out, I'm like, this is gonna become two parts, and like, where am I gonna cut this off at?
0: That's a, that's a good spot.
1: And, and then this is where I'll plan on finishing up. But I felt like some of the details that happened in Tony Kurtz's apartment helps out explain, like, because with modern day SWAT using flashbangs and other devices to gain entry into a suspect's home. This, I mean, those things did exist, but mm-hmm. it wasn't a possibility to use these because of what was reported at Tony's apartment from what SWAT officers were seeing. Oh. And then I happened to find one of the three interviews that Dick Hall, his hostage, ever did his entire life over this. Okay. They explained what went into Tony's apartment, and I was so thankful to find this.
0: Okay. Well, quit talking about it because I'm just going to be like, you know what? Fuck it, just do the rest of it. And it's just gonna be one long ass well, one the, long ass. Well, episode.
1: here's the thing: I don't have part two finished. Yet. I know,
0: <laughs> God, and I know that. So, yeah, fuck but, you for the cliffhanger. Oh uh, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs>
1: well, because like, here's the thing: I wanted to end it with his trial and everything, but yeah. the things that I read about Dick Hall and the things that happened afterwards, it was like you don't really hear about, you know okay kind of spoil it they both live oh but they both live yes i know it's a spoiler but this is the one time if anything in true crime that i've ever found any information of a victim of the things that happen afterwards down the road and whatnot Mm -hmm. other than yes the obvious they get ptsd they do book deals and stuff like that or whatever but this is the only time i've ever seen like within the first couple years afterwards mm-hmm. that you there's a telling of what happens to these people
0: like verbally from the victim yes yeah okay that, i see what you're saying
1: yeah you know, like i'm not gonna go into it because i'm gonna ruin yeah it. don't but this you know the details are important of how tony kurtz has kept the police and the national guard of indiana of indiana from storming his place okay it's kind of important to explain it, but that's also part of the details I left out because don't need those guys who don't know what jokes are at her front door. Correct. You know, along, you know, letting themselves in, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And interesting thing I am going to say, though.
0: Is it going to spoil anything? No,
1: it's not. One of those three times that he ever talked about it was I, a high school news reporter that she tricked him into talking to him about it.
0: And then she ran the story. Mm-hmm. What a cunt.
1: No, he was actually... Impressed by her, you know, desire to get the story, that he saw it as a good being a good journalist, so he gave her the interview.
0: Okay, that's why. Okay, I thought you were saying like she tricked him, like I don't know, going on a date with him. No, and no, just no, talking. no, no, no. Okay, no. She, okay. I I retract my cunt statement.
1: <laughs> she tricked him in saying that she worked for the certain newspaper that is in the Indianapolis area, mm-hmm. and then when she's doing, he's doing this interview with her she confesses to him she's like i gotta come clean with you i only a reporter for my high school newspaper i'm sorry and apologized immediately so he
0: gave one of his three interviews to a high school student Mm -hmm. wow okay
1: but he was so impressed by you know her journalistic skills on going the extra mile of doing this to get him to talk about it he gave her the interview huh so that's going to be part one of tony kurtz's the dead man's line
0: that's very interesting
1: yeah i figured you'd like me get
0: <sighs> shop cats are mouthy yeah of course yeah anyhow she's ready to go too man let's wrap I, this I know, shit up late
1: as this, we're here <laughs> in midnight here at this fucking store basically doing this episode we stayed way later than we should have yeah i knew you would like get really into this because you probably had never yeah. heard of any type of situation no. like this before no hell so. no
0: Yes, Ginger, we know. We're (laughs) going to (laughs) leave soon.
1: Alright, so since Ginger's wanting to get out of here, I think it's probably time we close up the emporium for the day. What do you think? I agree. And until next time,
0: remember to creep it real. Okay, bye.
1: Bye.
0: Our website is live. Make sure you check it out at and Join our Facebook group and follow us on Twitter at Macabre emporium. Like and subscribe to us on YouTube at emporium podcast. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, true crime, whether it be local or a story you you know you may have heard. Weird history you want us to look into and possibly do an episode on or include within an episode, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. And remember to follow, rate, review, and share wherever and whenever you can. To help us grow our little baby podcast.
1: could have been a much shorter walk if Tony had remembered where he po- parked his, poked his car.
0: <laughs> I mean, you don't know. He could be into some geeky shit like that.
1: Yeah, then brian has been all less than else. Get the head like a fake pussy <laughs> in the back of it. Anyhow, <laughs> that's getting cut. <laughs>